Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi and welcome to today's episode of Climate Consulting. In this one I speak to Claire Hill, CEO of Sysdoc. Claire's story is fascinating and goes to show that you don't need to start your career in the industry to reach the top. Having spent the first 15 years of her working life working in advertising, Claire decided that she needed a change. She needed a career that would work better with her family life and her home life. She had two young children at home and the socializing and client events that were commonplace in advertising at the time just weren't working for the way she wanted her life to be. It was then through a chance conversation with a friend that she learned about Sysdoc and decided to make the bold leap into consulting. Not a common move from advertising, as I'm sure you will know. Over the last 25 years, Claire's been on a hugely exciting rollercoaster ride that has seen her help navigate Sysdoc through the telco boom and bust of the early 2000s, the financial crisis of the mid-2000s, and the recent global pandemic. Throughout all of that, the firm has grown and Claire has seen her career skyrocket. 
going from a brand new consultant to becoming CEO of the UK business, a role she has now held since 2010. With so much experience under her belt and a fantastic journey through the ups and downs of building a consulting firm, I knew we would have a ton to speak about. And Claire shares so much great advice in this episode. To give you a little taster of what is to come, we dive into some fascinating topics, including making the move from industry into consulting, how Claire found it, and why Sysdoc are just as willing to hire industry professionals as they are experienced consultants. We talk about Sysdoc's growth journey and how they've been able to retain their entrepreneurial spirit even after 35 years. And we discuss the founding principles of Sysdoc and why aviation thinking is at the heart of everything they do. This fascinating episode covers so much ground. So whether you are just starting out on your consulting journey, maybe you're like Claire was and thinking of making the leap from industry into consulting, or perhaps you simply want to find out more about Claire's fascinating journey and how her career took flight, I know that you are going to love this episode. So with the intro over, all that's left to say, sit back, relax, and please enjoy today's conversation with Claire Hill. Claire, welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. Nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. And, and thank you for having me to your office today. Great to have you on the show, Claire. And I think to start with, it'd be great if you could share your journey to where you are today at Sysdoc. Well, that's a big question. So maybe we'll do it in parts. But um, so my background is I started, my, first, my career, I started in advertising. So back in the day, I was a media planner buyer in a small media planning company. You're in my world of marketing. Yeah, exactly. So that was all good fun right through sort of the 80s into the 90s. Really enjoyed it. Lots of fun working on big clients, Sky, BT, all sorts of different clients, and had no intention really of leaving the world of media. But um, I had my first child, went back after quite a short maternity leave. Um, I was thinking, gosh, this lifestyle, it's quite hard to maintain when you've got children. And then I had a second child. And um, during my maternity leave, I met David, who was running Sysdoc at the time in the UK. It was a new startup. And he was uh, his, he was married to a friend of mine. And we got talking. And he was talking about Sysdoc really passionately about this new company, what they were doing in terms of innovating and driving real improvement to business. And said, look, why don't you come and see us down on one of our projects? So I popped down to cable and wireless on the Great West Road. And there was a project there all around business process improvement. Now, I'd never seen a business process. I'd never worked with technology, but I liked the buzz of the team. I liked the feel of the company. So I made quite a, I would say, I wouldn't call it impetuous, but quite a quick decision really to leave my career of 15 years and to try something new. And that, that was partly based on, I like the energy, but also it was a kind of a work-life balance type thing. I wanted to spend more time at family. The requirement around entertaining in media was quite strong at the time, and it just felt right. So there, so I, um, I made the decision. I joined Sysdoc and spent the first few months actually on a project at Cable & Wireless, which was our first Sysdoc project in the UK. So the company had been in the UK probably about six months by then. And... Yeah, I would say it was quite interesting change from media into process improvement. During the first few months, I did sort of think, wow, what have I done? Have I made a crazy decision here? This is a world I just don't know. And it felt quite dry compared to what I was used to. But as I got to know and understand the purpose of what we were doing, which was all around business improvement, it was all around driving great outcomes for people. Actually, then I started to really feel happy with my decision 
But the real turning point came of me thinking, right, this is the right thing to do. It was actually through a really difficult situation. So we had a fantastic first year. We brought loads of associates over from Australia, New Zealand. The project at Cable Wireless was with IBM and it was very successful. We were driving real benefits and it felt great. At the end of, and it was the end of 2001, there was a crash in the telco market and loads of projects closed, including our big project at Cable & Wireless with IBM and the other project, which was at NTL at the time. So it was probably about five days before Christmas. David was in New Zealand and I had to let all of our team know that actually there wouldn't be any project for them after Christmas. So we then was kind of sat there. We had very little cost in the business. We also had very little business. So we had to rethink. And I think David felt fairly bad. I'd left my career to join a company that suddenly... We were starting again, but it was the best thing ever for me because I really learned then about the business. I learned about how you sell, how we approach clients and the benefits that we deliver and why Sysdoc was different and why, and I really got to understand that in talking to clients. We also, and this is, this is still relevant now, is built our network because not only us had left those projects, everyone else in the project had left as well. And they'd all gone and diversified into other organizations. So... David and I went to meet and network with everyone. We did loads of meetings. We decided we'd only sell process improvement because it was straightforward. And we would only work, we'd try and find lots of different industries rather than sticking to one. So we wouldn't get ourselves in this situation again. And so we then soon got into Network Rail, into Elsevier, shortly after into Chevron. And these were all network-based contacts. And if we map now from today, back to 2000. We can still do the six degrees of separation back to not just cable and wireless, but some of our clients in New Zealand in terms of where our big, big business opportunities have come from. So that's where it started and it's kind of moved on from there really. Wow. Well, I think great origin story and, and a lot for us to dig into and we'll we'll talk about where it's moved on to as well. But I, I'm fascinated by that time. Actually, that's quite a stark crash. And interestingly, where we are in the economic cycle at the moment, you know, some people are saying, well, are we in the next crash? That period, take me back to, it's obviously worked out for you. Maybe we start with that, how you decided process and also how you decided cross-industry. Because there's an interesting question of some people feel you need industry expertise. You know, David obviously had industry expertise. You had joined fairly recently coming from a different sector. Actually, how did you start pitching and selling process projects in industries you almost had no experience in? Because some would find that quite difficult. Yeah, and it's it's not a traditional consulting model, but then we weren't traditional consultants in, in fairness. So we decided on process because both of us understood, David was from a process background, I could really understand the selling points of chart, challenge and change, which is our process methodology, and how actually you can then show real business benefit for that. And actually our... Back, and it's probably worth speaking about our founder, Catherine Corridge, because it lends into it. So Catherine had set up the company in sort of the mid-80s as a young entrepreneur. She'd trained as a pilot and had also been a consultant in IBM. And her vision was to bring what she'd learned in aviation around end-to-end system-based thinking, really strong checklists, a focus on people to drive change, and a real kind of learning from experience kind of way of working and continuous improvement. And that applies to any industry, doesn't it? Actually, you don't need to be an industry expert to work with the experts within that industry to drive positive process improvement. So we were confident. I don't think we even considered that that was a problem, to be quite honest with you. Interesting, when you talk to clients now, they often, they always do want industry expertise. But I think it was almost a sort of the joy of the, the naivety of being new to a market it that, that because we weren't worried about it it didn't actually become a problem and to work and the, as you see that the industries we've got in all three different industries in those kind of early clients for this stock over here 
And did you have that chart challenge change methodology at that time? Or is that something that's come since then? No, we that was the methodology we were using then. And we've built on that and kind of brought more into it. And it's really straightforward. We used it in all those clients around simply charting a process, going through a challenging phase, and then kind of documenting the improvements and helping businesses have that platform understanding how they do things now so that they can then improve and build on that. I wonder if, because that feels quite important, I imagine, when you're having these conversations, having that methodology, I suspect, opens some of those doors as well. Definitely. And it was really straightforward. You know, it did what it said on the tin. People got it very quickly. And the other thing that was a real selling point for us in that consulting world as a small, small organization was the whole ethos we have about building capability and not a dependency. And part of what we did, we had chart challenge and change, but we also had what we called our knowledge portal. And the knowledge portal was a way of visualizing process. So rather than just delivering a program and at the time, having lots of paper files sitting there on a shelf somewhere, putting it onto a really nice online platform, that became an information asset for the business going forward. And those two things together were our our real selling points. And actually the knowledge portal back in the day won a Gold Gartner Award for work we did with IBM prior to joining um, Cable and Wireless, actually. Wow. So like you say, the approach sounds like it was a great way and something clients could understand. I guess there's an interesting psychological aspect. You know, it sounds like you had to let everyone go just before Christmas. You then went off with your family, David, with his. You're back in January. How did you two almost keep yourselves and each other motivated? Because that's, again, I imagine quite a hard time. You've got to keep it going. What were the things that you two did to to sort of rally yourselves to do that business development, to get yourselves going? Because some people would have said, let's just give up there. I think we just did it. I don't think we really thought too hard about it. We kind of sat down and thought, we've got a job to do here. We had people, whilst they were not employed people because we didn't, they weren't staff members, but we felt a duty to kind of finding more work for those people. And of course, it's the joy of the challenge. It's the joy of the challenge of having a problem to solve and working together to, to make it happen. Yeah, no, it makes it makes a lot of sense. Like you say, it's kind of it's only when you think back you wonder how, how did we manage that? We didn't really think about it too much. We just got on and did it. It was the first part of your story, but I'm fascinated for some of our listeners who who may be in a similar position in terms of sort of just coming back from maternity leaves or having sort of just had families. I've I've got a little son, say so I this is something sort of close to my heart. But um how did you approach that change and how do you recommend other young parents do? Because at times like that where there's great upheaval in your life it can sometimes be appealing to just stay, you know, keep everything else static. Whereas you almost did the opposite of that by the sounds of it. Second time around. The first time around, I went straight back into advertising, worked in the same way I'd worked always, which was full on. If there was a pitch to do or an all-nighter to do, whatever you did back in those days, you, you just did it. And it felt, there's something in me that felt that this isn't really how I wanted to kind of work. Not that I didn't want to work hard. I wanted, you know, I like working hard. I like contributing, but that somehow that lifestyle was difficult to maintain at the time. And this opportunity came, it felt like serendipity. And actually, I felt so privileged to be given this this opportunity. I was working, I wasn't working five days a week. I was working three days to start and then went up sort of over time that I wanted to make it the best success I could do. And I was always an ambitious person as well. So I was always kind of ambitious to make the best of whatever situation I had. And I suppose it was my version. It wasn't quite hybrid, but I was working from home part of the time. And it felt like a really good balance from a family perspective. It sounds like it worked really well. And like you say, balancing those different priorities as well. I want to turn to something you actually, you introduced Catherine a moment ago. And I think for our listeners, it'd be great to talk about that origin story because you piqued my interest when you said she was a pilot and she wanted to bring that insight into our industry, into organisation. So could you start with, I guess, 
a bit more of actually how she started the business and those core tenants that it was founded on and, and is still sort of working to today? Yeah, no, of course. So she had started work as an IT consultant and whilst also self-funding to train as a commercial pilot, which is actually what her father had done, he was a commercial pilot. So she, she'd always had this passion to fly. And I think what she's told me, and you know, maybe one day you should have a, a chat with Catherine about her story as well, which is fascinating, is that in aviation, she had this kind of fantastic, what you'd call system thinking, sort of everything joined up. Safety was paramount. There was a real focus on making sure people understood their roles, what to do in an emergency, what to do if they needed to speak up because something wasn't safe. Were trained to a level that they could fly a, a jumbo jet by just sitting in a simulator without ever having to go in the air, you, which is, is, I've always been fascinated as actually possible. And it was all very clear. It was transparent. It was accurate. And then in business, it was, she felt it was a bit more chaotic and a bit more kind of, so she went to her bosses and said, I just think there's a better way to do things. And she was probably in her mid-20s at the time. And her first client was her former employer, IBM. And that also lines to how there's a bit about Catherine as a person, as an entrepreneur. You know, she's very values-based, very focused on people and making sure that whatever we do, we do the best things for our clients and also really work as a team. I would say Sistot was probably quite early in bringing females into senior consulting roles, enabling females to work part-time, full-time and making that work for, for a client so we're delivering the best outcomes. And those principles have kind of continued through the organisation. It was interesting. As we grew in the UK, when we got to about 30, probably about 30 people, we thought, you know what, we need to kind of take a step back and think about what our values are. Who are we? What do we mean? Because we can't all just sit around a dining room table and just know it. So we did an exercise here in the UK around our values. We got worked with our team and we did a sort of structured process to, to identify and we identified our five values. And then we said, well, we need to do this globally. We can't just do it in the UK. We're a global company. And I actually thought, okay, this is going to be quite difficult. We've done them here now and New Zealand will come up with something completely different. But do you know what? It was a really straightforward exercise. We sent over what we'd done. They challenged it and they came and contributed. But quite quickly, as a global organisation at opposite ends of the, of the world, and a lot of people never having met each other, we came up with really with five values that everyone bought into and whatever you have many years now on, it's, it's probably 10 years on, we still, those values are embedded through everything we do. Amazing. Well, and, and I want to come on to more around those values and, and how the business works together, like you say, the sort of New Zealand side and the UK. I think holding on the point around the, the aviation principles, I guess, thinking about anyone listening to this who isn't from that background might be thinking, well, you know, I, I work in an office, I don't need to fly a plane, or I, you know, no one's going to die if I don't send that email, I don't need a checklist. So how does that work in practice? And how have you evolved those principles to work with your clients, you know, you, the ones you mentioned and others? Yeah, so our core methodology is, called, is flight path. And it's around identifying where you want to go to and the journey to get there. The first part of aviation principles is really documenting where you are now, the process, the end-to-end -end process, not starting with a little bit in the middle, but actually really understanding where you are now. Quite often we work on big IT change programs and quite often they're very technology focused. And I think where we really make a difference and where the aviation principles come into their own is that focus on people. And it's not just a bit of transactional training, it's understanding the change for the people and how you get them from one place to another and, and doing that in a very conscious, structured way training is really important. It's not just about training people to press a button. It's actually training people in their new process and thinking about how that works, but also 
what they do when things go wrong. So what we would call failure mode analysis, thinking about, well, if the process doesn't work, training them in, in understanding what goes wrong. And the other part is um, thinking about making that training and the engagement really intuitive to understand, engaging to consume. And we'll use visualization and humans. We have people in our team who are human experience design experts, human-centered design experts who pull together really lovely materials. And I think, you know, recently I was at one of our clients in Jersey thinking about all the different people on the island who are going through a major transformation. You know, I went into what we called our vision room. And really, it's just a room where you can bring people and visualize the whole story of a program. And that's, again, thinking about, you know, experiential learning, not just thinking about how I train someone in technology. And then the other one is around making sure you've done all of that, keeping it documented and setting the company up for continuous improvement after. So the program doesn't end when the program ends. The business as usual begins and people have to be kind of have the materials, the learning, the confidence to operate in in their new roles. Um, and it makes a lot of sense. I love that, like you said, that experiential learning and helping people see and feel things, not just too often we revert to reading and PowerPoint slides, not actually what it will feel like day to day. Yeah. And it's funny that the vision room is a strange one. We do it on most clients. And you know, the, one of the early vision rooms was where we worked them on their whole kind of the global business expansion they were doing. There was a program that hit a real kind of impasse, absolute impasse. And we did the most rudimentary vision room that ended up being visited by Dr. Ralph Speth, the whole executive, and was a real turning point in getting that program back on track because what would have happened there was they were implementing so much change all at once that it was becoming overwhelming and it was actually making sure the leaders understood it and that could then kind of filter down through the organisation. So I've got to ask, and if you can't share the specifics, just in general would be great. What does a vision room look like? A vision room will create the story of a programme. And I'll go back to a lot of the programs we work on are implementing a major IT system, an ERP system like SAP, Oracle, PeopleSoft, something like of that type. So they cover everyone in the organization. And what a vision room does is it might put the end-to-end process of how the company does business on the wall. And then it it will talk about different people. It can visually take people through the impact on them and their different area in the organization. So it's understanding It's the story. It's bringing the story to life as to why the company is doing this change. A little bit about the impact on that person in a very kind of high level way. And their leaders and their managers can bring them in and have a chat with them. It's very simple. And we now do them online as well, sort of virtual vision rooms. But they are very, very effective in in embedding learning. I'm interested because I'm sure you've had this and for others listening. Do, do you ever get pushback or maybe in the early days, did you have pushback from clients where they say, well, we'll hire you to do the systems thing, but we don't want to pay for the room? And how do you overcome some of those challenges? Yeah, well, often what we'll do is work with the client to think about what budget have you got? What are you trying to achieve? And then try to help them rather than saying, yes, we just want this bit and none of the rest. We're actually thinking more creatively around, let's think about how we can make best use of your budget. Because quite often, Clients have got limited budgets and we have to work within those those confines. We'll always encourage clients to get people from the business onto into our team so that they can learn. And I think that's a missed opportunity when clients don't do that. So rather than have a consultancy company to come in and do stuff to them, it's thinking about actually how can we engage with you and help your people come on a journey so they feel real ownership of it. So yes, always. So yeah, we'd love to do games and all sorts of things with our clients. We can't always. So it's just thinking about the best learning within the confines of the budget and the scenario. And that doesn't always mean, and, and I think what you'll see quite a lot is 
I've got this much money, therefore I need to do really simple, just like simple instructional design and, and a bit of um, PowerPoint and that'll be fine, where actually you can use that, you use that money much more effectively. That makes sense. I want to turn to, you mentioned around where Sistock was founded and actually what we didn't touch on. So David, you mentioned sort of brought you into the business in the UK, but actually why the UK? How did that kind of UK arm of the business come about? Because again, thinking of other consulting firms I speak to where they're thinking of expanding, they might go somewhere where maybe the time difference is a little shorter. That's quite a jump, New Zealand to the UK. How, how did that come about? It was re- really simple. We had been working with IBM in New Zealand and their program director was working on a four-year program of transformation here and thought, I need Sistot to come and drive quick win process improvements so we can demonstrate program benefits quickly rather than over the four-year transformation when the bigger sort of benefits will come. So we were invited here and Catherine has an English mother. So she had strong connections with the country, with Yorkshire. So it all kind of came here, same language. And that's why we came here. And we've had other sort of global forays, you know, sort of based, often based on opportunities. So we've done a lot of work with Chevron over the years and, um, they were doing started off in in um, London. We did a big program in Pembrokeshire, and that became quite well known because it helped Pembrokeshire become the fastest part of the organisation to become Sarbanes Oxley compliant back in the day. So we were then invited to go to work in Kazakhstan, and we looked at should we set something up there or should we? So what we actually did was a partnership there to, to make to make that region work. And we worked there for about four years, and that's you know I think one of the questions you had. Uh, or you've got me to think about up front was, you know, what makes you proud? And I think we were being very proud of being able to go to a completely different region, work both in the oil refinery and in the in the business unit in the city and feel like we were making a difference, not just to, and this was around process improvement, this particular project, but also in building capability. We trained, I think, 40 or 50 people to be able to do it for themselves. And the team members out there, a lot of them got involved in the community and really felt connected with the society there. And similarly, in the US, we've done this, the same kind of thing. So whilst we're 35 years old, retain that entrepreneurial spirit where there's always a way to do something. No, I, I love that. And I think you might be the first guest who's had an office in Kazakhstan. So con- <laughs> congratulations on that. I, that entrepreneurial spirit piece is interesting as well as you grow, because I think is possible at all sizes, but naturally gets harder as you grow. You have to put more controls in. You know, to that point, how have you achieved that? How have you kept that balance of kind of growth and control with that entrepreneurial drive as well? And it's it's difficult sometimes. I think so. Where you're working on a big program of change, you get immersed in that. But we know, and what we do, we have to keep reinventing ourselves because the world's changing. One of our values is awesome together and and another is high energy. And they're kind of around people working together and solving problems. And people love an opportunity to do something new and different. And I think that's how we've kept relevant over the years is we we haven't stood still and just said, look, we'll just keep doing the same old thing the same old way. We've still got a chart challenge change basis to what we do. But actually now it's quite an interesting time because there's so much change going on in the world. You know, the pandemic has changed everything and organizations are reinventing themselves. So we're now thinking about how do we data enable what we do? We do a lot of change management now. We work with organizations going through big change, but we need to data enable it. How do people learn now compared to how they learned three years ago? I mean, it's changed that quickly. So that continuous need to reinvent yourself is part of how we retain the entrepreneurial spirit. But also because we work in a project environment, we don't have continuous business as usual. So you have to retain that energy because we're always going out. We're always going to have to win business. 
it makes a lot of sense. And, and actually, it ties into something else that I I understand, you know, similar to your story, you, you came from a sort of advertising and media background, which is not the typical consulting background. And to your point around doing things slightly differently, I, I understand there is still quite a big focus in Sysdoc around recruiting people who aren't purely from consulting. And I'd love to understand almost why and the benefits you see, because again, that's quite different to some firms who may say will only take from the big four, for instance. No, that's an interesting question. And if I think it hasn't been an intentional policy, however, when we're looking to fill a role, we're looking for the right person for that role. So we haven't got, they have to come from this mould or that mould, but having deep industry knowledge is definitely a big plus. So a lot of our people come from industry. They've often moved from a business as usual role into a consulting role. So internal consulting, they might have been on a big project themselves and thought, oh, I'm quite interested in this and kind of moved into a centre of excellence, a consulting role. And they're coming to us and they're really energetic. They're new to consulting. They bring a freshness, I suppose, to consulting. And we've got one lady in particular who's just um, joined us from industry. She's been on one of our big programs. She's just joined another program. And she's so loving consulting. She loves the challenge to deliver in different industries. It's like having a graduate with loads of experience. And I find that works really well in Sysdoc. So yes, we don't tend to search to find people from the big four, but sometimes we do and they're great too, but there's not one mould fits all. I think it's a really good point, like you say, around what actually the benefits people from industry can bring, because sometimes that's overlooked for the kind of consulting background. And we've touched on, I guess, the strengths for anyone listening who's thinking of doing the same. Are there certain skills that you find actually you have to put a bit more work into train those industry people or people from industry up? on the consulting skills? What are those gaps that maybe if someone else is thinking of doing the same, they need to support their new colleagues with? I think the first thing is, is, is consulting skills. So it's understanding you're not a member of staff because you can feel like a member of staff when you go into a programme. You are a consultant. You are being paid for by outcome or by the day or however, however that might be. So there's certain expectations and you have to not just deliver, but you actually have to report on delivery and you have to demonstrate that you've delivered value to the customer. You have to be brave because going continually into new environments can be quite daunting when you come from working in a business as usual team. But also the reward is that kind of the opportunity that brings to work in different industries, to work with different teams, to be continually refreshing your skills. And I think that appetite for something new is something we look for in in, in those sort of people as well. Fantastic. I want to, Claire, turn to your journey in Sysdoc, because we, we talked about when you joined, and yeah, that was quite a career change. Fast forward, and you've been CEO of the UK for, I think, coming up to 15 years, is that right? It's been not that long, but it's about, yeah, I can't actually know how long. Oh, well, <laughs> is it 15 years? A, good, a good amount of time. Yeah. I think that's what your LinkedIn <laughs> said, but there's a, a good amount of time. And I'm really keen to sort of take our listeners on that journey. We talked about when you joined, you know, exciting time in terms of rebuilding the business. Was sort of becoming a senior leader in the business always a goal of yours? Was it something that had come up? I guess, where did that conversation about becoming the CEO first come from? So when I joined, that wasn't my my objective, if you like, my personal objective. My objective was first to, to learn as much about consulting as possible and then to understand what that pathway could be because I didn't really know, to be honest with you. It was a very small company. I'd never worked somewhere so small. So it was, um, it was a very small organisation with there was just 10 of us to start and three employees, which was David, his next door neighbour, the finance person and me, and then about sort of 10 or so consultants. So it was that voyage of discoveries. And my journey, I suppose, the first few years, it was very much supporting David in sales and marketing, 
office support, everything really, as you do in a small business, you do everything. And there's various turning points, which are partly pre-CEO and then kind of as CEO. Those first few years, we built that foundation. We got really steady. We got good work in and that it was started to feel good. And we started bringing some employees in and it's kind of, most of our turning points have been client-led. So we started working at Vodafone again through this network of people. It's actually through the same sort of six degrees of separation from the first project. And we got involved in an SAP program. We were doing process work and they were doing a, a, an SAP program. And it was a huge opportunity for us to, to get involved in that kind of world. So we were doing all of our process work. They then asked us to get to support training. Now, we hadn't done training here, but we'd done it in New Zealand. So what we tended to do at the time would bring experts over because the exchange rate was really good. So people like to come. And also they knew CISOT, they knew our, how we work. So we went into Vodafone. It was a really successful program. It delivered... On time, it was all linked to Sarbanes-Oxley at the time. We were with, in partnership with a company called Axon. And then we then developed sort of a long-term relationship with Vodafone, did lots and lots of projects after the project. But that entered us into a whole new world of ERP and, and transformation. That then built on and we kind of got involved in government. This is pre-credit crunch. And then we had our next kind of dip. So David was still around. So credit crunch came and our ecosystem work turned off overnight. So, but because we still had very little cost in the business, we've been quite prudent. We've always been very well run financially in terms of an organization for keeping the business safe, being able to navigate difficult times that we were able to just to kind of reestablish. We still had our core ERP business that was now building and take it from there. And having had been through the earlier problem, it's actually, this one was actually relatively straightforward. And of course, at any time there's a big challenge, there's also opportunity for change and for remedial work. The next big, big turning point for me, so I was now moved into the CEO role. Catherine had come over and I hadn't met Catherine. I'd been with the business for seven years or so. I'd never met Catherine, our founder. And this was before you became CEO? Before I became CEO. So she came over, met Catherine, and David had, had always had a passion to set up a social enterprise. So he saw the opportunity, Catherine came over, that he was going to go off and set up his social enterprise. So everyone's plans changed. So Catherine hadn't planned to stay here for so long. David went off to set up his social enterprise, which he still runs, which is fantastic. And Catherine stayed for a while. And um, during that two-year period that was then, they kind of approached me and said, look, did I want to take on the CEO role? At first, I wasn't sure. I thought, do I really want to take this on at this stage of my life, you know, with young children and all of that kind of thing. But then I thought, well, this is a unique opportunity. Why wouldn't I do it? And that was, though I was given a lot of support to, to make that happen. So I took that on. And soon after, we actually got our opportunity. Now, this going from opportunity to actually doing any work, it took about a year. So we met over numerous occasions. And we really talked to them about chart change and change, our knowledge portal, and building that kind of capability and not a dependency, leaving a legacy for them to kind of they're right at the beginning of their global business expansion. So Tata had come in and investing heavily and they had to then kind of change the organization to, to be able to grow. And we were lucky enough to get in there right at the very beginning. So in for chart channel change process and knowledge portal. And then as we developed there, it became clear they really needed change management support. The change was significant going from a Midlands based car company to one that actually had to have global processes, was planning to open factories, was looking at supply chain and looking at change in their overall business model. So we then started, we actually developed our change management practice alongside working with 
We brought in some change managers. We developed a whole kind of change program, worked with them really on all their change, the opening of the factory in Brazil, the opening of their first engine plant in Wolverhampton, lots of the whole global supply chain, which was hugely complex, and then moved on to support them in, in procurement and things like warranties so right across the business. And that was a real privilege and something that I'm really proud of, that actually we were supportive through all that change and we've retained a, a relationship. And I think it's that's where that kind of entrepreneurial confidence and ability to take advantage of an opportunity comes into it. So some of these things we hadn't really done before, but we knew our aviation principles, we knew how to think end-to-end, we knew how to get people from point A to point B. And doing that in different, continually different parts of the organisation was a great opportunity for us to kind of enhance and build and develop our organisation, but also to support Jaguar on that kind of important journey of growth. Amazing. That definitely sounds like a great journey with JLR and, and a fantastic turning point for, for yourselves as a client. Yeah. I guess there's an interesting question for you as, as the leader in terms of the business, as you described, has changed a lot over that time. You know, you've added change, you've scaled quite considerably. How have you had to adapt your approach? What has changed you know, for you as a CEO, kind of from when you, you took over from David to now? How have you navigated that? And is there anything specific you've either had to focus on building for yourself or any, I guess, areas that you've had to change to give yourself the bandwidth in, in that role? Yeah, I think the big change is really you go from being hands-on with everything, you know, the intricacies of absolutely everything, to, to actually delegating more and actually have leaders around you who can take the business forward. And I've changed my role recently, so I'm CEO, but I've appointed Guy Sorrell, who's our managing director, who's taking on now a lot of the operational leadership of the organisation, and we've done something in similar in New Zealand. And again, it's that being able to step back and allow someone else to be in charge, whilst also being there in terms of as and when you are you required. So it's moving from that being in amongst the detail of everything to actually trusting, training and delegating to leaders in the organisation and being comfortable with that. And it's an obvious question. How, how did you get comfortable with that? Because consultants like to be on top of everything and that can be quite hard when you can't do that. I think you said that we're always learning. I'm also, you know, occasionally I still like to sort of delve in as everyone does, but it's actually just correcting yourself if you start going back and thinking, oh, God, well, I could just do that. You know, let, let me let, get my hands on it. It's fine to that balance. So I think, and it's, and it's working with team members. And the other thing we're trying to encourage, you know, one of the aviation pictures is just culture. Being able to speak up if you're not comfortable about something. So if Guy thinks I'm stepping on his feet, that he says to me, hang on a minute, you know, this is my job now. <laughs> so you need to back off. And I think we're trying to, we try to encourage that the people are, are comfortable to speak up if they feel something's not right. I really like that principle. And, and there's an interesting question in to the, your point around the new structure with Guy underneath you as the kind of managing director. How did you realise the time was right for that? Were, were enough people speaking up? Was it something you'd seen? Because there'll be other listeners who will probably be approaching a similar juncture. How, how did you decide that was right for you? It was more driven my personal desires, really. So my both my children have finished university. I've done this for a long time. And I felt that Whilst I still want to be involved with the business, it's time to give someone else an opportunity. And I, and I suppose that coming through the journey of the pandemic as well helped make me make that decision. So it was, you know, the first two, the two years of the pandemic were tough, but we did. We had existing business. We had to totally pivot how we delivered from being four or five days on site and every client to being completely remote. You know, there's one project, the Open University, we did completely remotely and it got shortlisted for an MCA awarded around one of their change pros. We'd never have planned to do it. We'd never have planned to do it that way. And then coming out of that, I thought, well, actually, 
we're, we're reinventing, you know, we're reinventing how we work, we're reinventing how we engage with clients, how we sell. That requires almost that same level of drive, energy, and everything else that's required in a managing director to do that again for another five years or whatever it might be. And it felt like it just it all just felt like the right time. No, I, I think makes a lot of sense. And I suspect comes from just those open and honest conversations as well, yeah. doesn't it? You mentioned before, and I think obviously one of the challenges with any long tail project is, is, I guess, keeping it going, how you find those other parts of the company to work with, how you build on. Actually, how did you do that? Because again, for some people listening, that's going to be a really key success for their business as well. You know, it helped yours. How did you approach, was there anything specific you did with that account to grow it to where it was? The first thing is about delivering well on everything you do. So whilst it's one account, it was lots and lots of projects. So you get selected for a project, not for the duration of a of a growth cycle. So doing the first project, delivering well, getting good feedback, making sure it lands well. You get asked to, sometimes we had to pitch for another project. You didn't always just get given the next project. Well, quite often, or yeah, frequently you had to pitch for the next project actually because of you know competitive procurements and everything, which is the, absolutely the right thing to do. So it's being on top of your game, always delivering good client service and keeping your eyes open. And, and actually one thing I say to for graduates or people come and say, what should I be doing now? Building your networks, understanding you're meeting people. Those people, it's nice to, to meet lots of different people. But it's also these, this is your network for the future. These people will be future leaders. So making sure when you're in an organisation that we're having the conversations, we're connecting, we're giving them extra value. We're all of those sort of good things in a project environment to continue sales cycle. I think that's great advice. Like, I really like that continuous sales cycle piece because I think quite often people can forget that, yeah. oh, you're delivering, you know, we'll do selling later. And I should have asked quite a lot earlier, Claire, you've mentioned quite a few times that network of yours. And actually, when you trace back that six degrees of separation, it, kind of they all stem from there. What is your approach to keeping that network alive? Because it can be very easy at a certain stage of life, particularly before kids. I know you had kids at this time, but to go out for drinks every night, you mentioned around the sort of media world. How did you do that sort of with your network in Sysdoc in a way that I guess was sustainable, but also felt quite natural with those people? Because that network sounds like it's been a key to, to your success. It's just making it part of what you do and doing it consciously. So every every week, just having a look down your contact, who haven't I contacted for a while? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't always have to be drinks. You can go for a coffee, you can meet someone. You know, during the pandemic, you all learned to have Teams meetings and all of that kind of stuff. And the other thing is not to be fearful if you think, oh my God, I haven't spoken to this person for years. If you've worked, worked with them before, you've done good work, you, it's been a good experience uh, all round. People are generally quite pleased to hear from you, even if it's been a while. So you don't always keep everything juggling all, all, all the time. It's that you pick up. And I've found people are generally quite pleased to hear from you if you haven't been in touch for a while. So it's there's not just one thing, it's lots of different things. And it's, have, it's more having it, in, it as part of your way of working. Yeah, I, th I think that point, a bit to what you said around sort of continuous sales cycle, if you're always having a coffee with someone or meeting yeah. someone, it, it's part of what you do as if you try and have 20 meetings in a week and then nothing for six months. I imagine that, that doesn't work as well. And it's enjoyable. It's enjoyable because meeting people is a nice thing to do. So, you know, for me, I found the pandemic really quite hard not being able to go and meet people as much. And for us, that was a challenging time for us, our business from a sales perspective, because our traditional way of selling is going out to meet people. It's meeting people on client site. It's meeting people at events. It's meeting people at 
industry kind of gatherings or you know the management consulting association or trade tech uk or one of those kind of things we connect a women-owned business fan, uh, group we belong to so that was i think that was really hard and i think coming out of the pandemic that was quite tricky to looking at that thinking actually we you lost a bit of momentum around the network and that's why i'm saying don't be worried about getting back in touch with people just because you've lost momentum over a period of time doesn't mean they're not going to be pleased to hear from you yeah like you say the covid years feel you you see people and, oh, I haven't seen you for, it feels like months, but with COVID, it's been yeah, yeah. years. And you touched on it earlier as well. You, it's hard not to have a conversation these days without talking about COVID. And the delivery side was a really important piece for sort of how you adapted to COVID and have, have carried on, I guess. Keen to touch on that, but are there any other areas that you had to shift as a business that have almost lasted, that you've kept post-COVID that kind of worked well and work well today? Work style. I mean, our how we work has changed and it's not just about delivering to clients. So during COVID, we employed people, but we had tended to employ people around the southeast, but we've employed people all over the country who are the best people for the job at the time. And actually bringing them all into London makes absolutely no sense at all of the time. So we need to find new ways to connect. And we've developed, we looked at hybrid and we've looked at bringing everyone back in or whatever, different ways of doing it. And actually we've de- developed what we, we just call it work style, which is around, it's not the same for every client. It's not the same for everything we do. So what's the client's needs? What's the business needs? And how does that, that person best work? And find that sweet spot across those three and have it, making sure that that's fluid, but making sure you don't forget to bring, if a client just, I mean, you have some clients know that they work remotely, so they want you to work remotely which has changed managers isn't ideal. You want to get time with people, but you can you can do it. But finding ways to actually bring people together for, for a real strong purpose, even if it's just to get the team together to do a workshop, do a bit of a session, do something just so to build relationships and making sure that that happens. And we're still learning. So it's about delivery, but it's also how we work as a business. No, I, I love the, the frame, that sort of, that work style. And does it ever... Because it's something I know a lot of consulting firms are wrestling that with that kind of tension of balancing the client's needs with the business's needs with the individual's needs. You know, if you hire someone, I know up in the northwest, and you've got a client in the southeast, is it? Have you had any challenges, and how have you overcome them? The biggest challenge I think we faced is bringing young people into business. I think that's the single biggest challenge when you're bringing in a graduate who might be living with their mum and dad. Well, that's. The part of starting work is is getting together and meeting other people who start out and work, learning from experience, learning from your from the the the, the senior people in the organisation, but also just listening in, listening to what's going on around you and in consulting. I think that's really important. So we're really thinking about how best to do that, and it's creating opportunities to collaborate and bring people together. And we're actually just about to embark on a new leaders program for our management layer so that everyone to to refresh leadership skills to think about how you lead in a different way in a new way of working it's not the same so we're still learning on that one no i think a great example and to your point i think the new working generation it it must be a real challenge because i i remember when i was sort of fresh into consulting a lot of value is gained from just following you know senior leaders around sitting in meetings and actually that doesn't feel intrusive when you're in a room like this you know someone's just sat there but it feels quite odd when you've got three of you on a Zoom and someone's kind of staring without saying anything or is off the mic. So I like, to your point, sort of those structures to bring people together. And I, sus- I suspect everyone in the world is trying to figure this out. Yeah, I'm sure they are. It's, uh, it's it, And consulting, I think, it's a strange one because that whole bringing a big project of maybe you might have 200 people on a project in it together and you feel, you know, there's an energy of being all together and how you recreate that 
program feel, which you, you can't quite recreate the same feel, but how you get something that really works on a big kind of complex program like that, I think we're still kind of shaping that up. Has the hybrid world made it easier to work UK and New Zealand together? Has that changed anything or is it because of the time zones, it's still what it was before? Yeah, from New, New Zealand, UK, it hasn't really changed. It's still, we're still 12 or 13 hours apart, depending on the time of the year. So, but we do collaborate with Zoom. What has made it easier is actually things like Teams, you know, Microsoft Teams. So we do have collaborative teams that we do use globally, and that works very well. So that has improved global working, but still, you know, you have to make an effort. Someone's got to be up early in the morning or someone else is in the evening. But we're used to it. We work like that. That's how we work. Yeah. Like you say, I think COVID's done many things, but it can't change the time zone, no. <laughs> can it? And one last question, because I'm, I'm very mindful of, we're sort of in the middle of the working day, and I know you, you've got quite a, a lot on as well, Claire, but something you said earlier, and I've been meaning to come back to it, because something that strikes me about Sysdoc is you've got yourself, you've got Catherine in senior leadership team positions, and that's quite unusual in our industry to have two women at kind of the top of the company. You mentioned actually that's been a focus for you as a business, and I'd love to know how you have support it sort of what you've done in that space to help female leaders and I guess your advice to anyone else listening who might want to follow in your shoes we haven't focused on bringing in female leaders but we have got a lot of female leaders but we've also got male leaders so the CEO of um, New Zealand is also a female but our two MDs are men so it's finding the right person for the role and actually not thinking that everyone's got to be the same so I think in making sure we're uh, we're creating opportunities for everyone in the organization whoever they are wherever they're from, whoever they might be, is really, really important. I think the thing about females is not being frightened. I mean, now people, everyone's doing it, but in the early days, not being frightened of actually allowing someone to do flexible working or allowing someone to work in a different way because you, what we're doing is we're delivering an outcome. So I think it's that way of thinking around solutions rather than it's a problem because it's not the same is um, a big part of it. It's, it's a great point. And like you said, the, the client buys the outcome. They actually, they probably don't care where you are, how you're delivering it to a certain extent. And actually, yes, that, that feels like something the pandemic has made more acceptable and you know, more prevalent of those flexibility, which opens. Traveling and consulting was always the killer, I felt, for most people. why I left the industry. And actually being able to do remote work opens it up to a whole load of people as well. It does. And it helps retain people in the industry, which is fantastic. And as consultants, we need to find good ways of delivering in a different way. But yeah, you're right. That lifestyle, particularly around sort of, you know, when people start having families was a time when you would lose quite a few people. Mm, no, definitely. And it, I'll be fascinated to watch, to your point around sort of being able to recruit all over the country or the world for the best time, actually, how that changes the makeup of the industry. Because particular, it was always at a certain level, females would drop out because of family care commitments. And actually, now that we can have remote, hopefully that balances the the sort of, I guess, the grades as we climb up the senior leadership ladder as well. No, I think so. I do think it's, I think it's changing, but there's still a way to go. <laughs> no, com completely agree. Well, Claire, we're, we're drawing to our last questions. And these are ones that I ask all of my guests. So I'm fascinated on your answers to them. First one is about books. And I, I'm now giving the health warning, you might not read books. And that's no criticism. I, I have had many a guest who said, I don't read business books, but so I'll ask it as books, but you tell me what works for you is what is the book or books that you have gifted or has had the biggest impact on you and, and why is that? A book that made it was a surprising book that made a difference is a book by Clive Woodward and I was reading his book it was around the beginning of the pandemic the whole thing around team and how he got his team to focus on winning the World Cup or whatever I think it was the World Cup I'm not a rugby fan the, I actually skipped over the rugby bits and focused on his team bits but I just found it fascinating and that helped us or helped me shape up how we kind of approached 
how we worked in the pandemic because it was clear, it was succinct, it focused on people, right people in the right roles, doing the right things, all going in one direction. So that was a business book that I really enjoyed unintentionally picking it up for my husband. <laughs> no, I, I love that. And as I say, I give the caveat because I've had many a guest who actually business books aren't their thing. And in your case, it was a, a rugby book as well as a business yeah, book. Yeah. No, I've heard, I had it highly recommended. It's not one I've read yet. No, um, you I, should. Yeah. As a, as, as a rugby fan, I, I'm familiar with the rugby story, but the leadership pieces, I think like you say, it's a, you know, a bit like with yourselves, it's just with that translation from aviation into business. I think sport to business has got a lot of similarities as well. Yeah, and from being a New Zealand-owned company, we've we've been to various not haven't read the books, but been to the various events with All Blacks, who talking about that that correlation between how the All Blacks are so successful and how you can it can put that into all other aspects of of business and work and team building. Oh, definitely. Well, we've got the Rugby World Cup coming up later this year, so I'm sure you'll probably be over there with some of your New Zealand colleagues Hopefully, as well. Yeah. And, and the last question, then, Claire, and and this is a chance. It could be a recap. It could be some some new pieces. But you have three people in front of you. One is a graduate just starting out to our conversation. One is sort of middle of the pre-partner grade, so five, six, seven years in, they're kind of, I'd call them a manager in kind of traditional consulting terms. They know enough to have options, but they're not super, at the senior end yet. And the final person is someone approaching partner or, or managing director. And the question is, what one piece of advice would you give to each of those people? I think I've said the graduate one is around networking. So I think it's really important for graduates to remember that start networking at a young age and that will set you up. For someone kind of the four or five years really thinking about it's not just about delivery. It's about the whole commercial relationship, getting them involved in bids, thinking, putting themselves forward to do things they don't normally do so they become a really well-rounded consultant. And I think we see that the, the people in Sistock are really eager. They want to do everything. They want to kind of, they, they know that actually just delivering great work isn't going to cut the grade to get them to the next level. So that's the piece of advice I give when people ask me at that level. And then going to sort of partner managing director, that's a hard one because it's often quite individual. Different people require different bits of advice. I think the piece for consultants moving into that level is that kind of step away from full-on delivery. And that can be quite hard. I think it's the same in any profession, really. If you're full-on delivery with clients, and then you actually have to become more of a managerial role. So you're 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 out you're out there, you're trying to win your winning business, you're kind of leading much bigger teams across broad clients. I think for a consultant, and we give people kind of training in this kind of thing, is thinking about is helping them to move away from being immersed in the detail into being kind of more director type roles. I think some great advice, Claire, and a fantastic place for us to end today. So thank you very much. The only last thing to ask is if someone wants to find out more about yourself or they're, they're interested in finding out more about Sistock, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? If you want to call about me, I'm on LinkedIn, Claire Hill. You know, if Claire Bugler Hill will make me easier to find, actually. Sistock, we've got our website, Sistock, and we're always open. Get in touch, get in touch by the website or myself or Guy or anyone in, in the leadership team. We'll always get back to anyone who gets in touch with us. Amazing, Claire. Well, we'll put details of your LinkedIn profile and the website in the show notes so people can find you. And all that's left to say is thank you very much and all the best for the rest of your day. Yeah, thanks, Nick. That was good fun. So Great fun. Speak thank to you. you right. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.